So you can start making your way over there. It'll be Judges chapters 9, 10, and 11, and 12. Um, next, in our next study, um, we're going to make it into the life of Samson. So those will be some familiar chapters to study together. Probably these chapters are not the most familiar in the book of Judges, uh, but they are, they are great lessons for us to glean and to learn from and, and continue to see um, this, this terrible cycle that Israel found themselves in. So let's turn there to Judges chapter 9, and we will begin just with a quick reminder that Judges is a book that's showing us a cycle, and the cycle is um, Israel rebels against the covenant that God has made with them. They go and they begin to follow the gods of the Amorites and begin to worship, and they begin to live like them. And then the Lord brings judgment upon them and in the form of uh, some kind of oppression by an invading army. And then this will carry on for, you know, some 8, 10, 15, 20 years or so. Um, and then it'll reach, reach this climax point where Israel will say, we cannot bear this anymore. A, a spirit of understanding will be given to them and they will repent of their sin. And God will then raise up a deliverer. Um, and that deliverer will come in and he will throw off the, the bondage and the oppression of that invading army and they will begin to worship the Lord and they generally will live pretty well until that judge dies off and then we will read, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord again. And that is a repeated cycle and theme. And um, it'd be nice if we could say just in the book of Judges, but among the people of God, this has been a, a theme, um, and sadly and unfortunately. But let's begin in chapter 9, and we're going to look at the bloody reign of Abimelech. And just as a, a note, if you just go up a handful of verses to verse 31 of chapter 8, we get this. It says, And his concubine, uh, so Gideon's, uh, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. So <laughs> it doesn't condemn this, but uh, we know that what God's intention was from the very beginning, and, that, and this is not it. Is, this is not it, and we can see the trouble that's going to come. So we look there at chapter 9, verse 1. Then Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, uh, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers and spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, which is better for you, that all the seventy sons of Jeroboam reign over you, or the reign, or that one reign over you. Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. Okay, so, you know, my mom was the, this concubine. And his mother's brother spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, and their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal-bereth, in which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. And then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jeroboam, on one stone. Note the, where they were killed, on a stone. Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of, the, all of Beth Milo, and they made Abimelech king 
beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. So uh, don't confuse Abimelech as a judge, just because he has a lot of uh, information that's going to be given to us about him. He's not a judge. He's a rebel. Um, he's, he's a troublemaker. Um, and you, know, you, you look at what has happened um, and how the nation responds to the family of Gideon, and you think, well, what kind of thanks is this for all the good that he did? He wasn't perfect. We talked about this. But you've considered what he did. Um, you know, when, when he turned their hearts away and destroyed the altar of Baal, they sought to stone him, but that was the very thing that God had asked him to do. Ephraim rebuked him uh, for not being included in the battle, if you remember that, and now his family is murdered. So, I mean, as each and every time he's stepping out and doing the right thing, it's being met with a repayment that is or payment that's not very kind and it's not very loving. This should not surprise us that as we seek to serve the Lord and do the things that he's called us to do, that there's going to be conflict. Now, the conflict would be really easy if the conflict appeared in the form of a, a guy in a red suit with a pitchfork and there are flames all around him. It was like, oh, this is an attack from Satan. Um, and we would be able to deal with it. But when the attack comes from, you know, the family of God, or it comes from those who we would expect to be thankful, well, man, it's a different story, isn't it? It hurts. It goes so much deeper. I think it's in times like these, well, I don't think, I know, it's in times like this, we need to be thinking of Jesus and how he stood fast. We need to think of Paul and how he stood fast. Even as the, the church at Corinth pressed him and pushed him and said all kinds of evil things against him. And he actually said to him, he goes, although the more I love you, the less I am loved. And he goes on to say, I will gladly spend, it will be, spend and be spent for the sake of your souls. So neither Jesus nor uh, Paul, um, not to put them on the same level, but they both modeled the same character. They did not retreat. Uh, they did not come to the conclusion, well, if this is the thanks I get, that I'm never going to serve again. And um, yeah, I, I love to be able to stand up here and tell you I have never once had that thought, but that would be a lie. Um, it's been short-lived. It's been rolled over onto the Lord. But I imagine I am not the only one who has um, felt that way where you feel like you've done kindness or goodness or you've served in some way and then it's been met with uh, you know, either just ignored or a lack of thanks or even worse if it becomes a point of attack. And that is what's going on here with the family of Gideon. And they are they're all put to death by, by their brother. And, you know, what, what a mess it is. So that, that kind of introduces us to the rebel, Abimelech, and we can see why he has a bloody reign. In verses 7 through 20, um, with the one son that escaped, whose name is Jotham, um, he's going to go to the men of Shechem, and he's got a few words for him. So it says, Now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out, and he said to them, You know what, can you go ahead and put up that, that slide of the, of the map? Um, you're going to put that up there now. and just give you a little bit of sense of, of where you are. So if you look on the left side of this map, um, kind of in the middle, and you'll see a little white box there, that right around there, um, is um, Mount Gerizim. 
And then the two cities that are in the right, um, just to the right of that, um, that's going to be Shechem and Thebes, and we'll, we'll get to them later. But um, So he's up there. He's in, you know, this is where um, the, there was a reading of the law. It was on Mount Ebal, on Mount Gerizim, okay? So this is where he is speaking to them from, and it has some natural, uh, uh, you know, acoustic carrying abilities that it really resonates. So um, th- this is where he's crying out. He says, listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And he's going to give this sarcastic, prophetic parable. Um, and and you'll, you'll see it. So the trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go, and go to sway over trees? Then the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my, f- my good fruit and go sway over trees? Then the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over trees? So you know, he's, he's given this idea that there's this nobility among these, um, you, know, th- you know, the vine and the two trees that says, We're not going to leave a good thing to go do this. And so... Verse 14, then all the trees said to the bramble, okay, now we've just, you've gone to something that was fruitful and beneficial to a bramble. You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade, which is kind of comical, a little bit sarcastic. How much shade do you get from a one-foot bramble? But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And so this is obviously, he's talking about Abimelech. Um, he is a bramble. Shechem are the ones that are saying, we'll make you as king. And, um, and there is this warning that says, you know, if you do this in truth, then great. But if you don't, at the middle of verse 15, but if not, the fire is going to come out of the bramble and is going to devour. So just as I said, remember that this that, uh, Abimelech killed the 70 brothers on the stone. Remember this, this lesson, that fire... Um, will come out of the bramble. And so this is something that we're going to read about. It's going to actually come to pass. It's going to be fulfilled. What we're going to see is that Abimelech is going to come and set uh, Shechem on fire, and, um, and then he's going to be killed um, in um, Thebes when a millstone is thrown out of a tower and it cracks his head open. And so he ends up eventually dying from that. So he is, so you have these kind of ironic things that are taking place, right? He's killing them on a stone. He's going to die by a stone. There's this, this prophecy of the bramble that is going to bring forth fire and Shechem is going to be burned. So this is exactly um, what is about to take place. Now in verses 16 through 20, we get this. It says, now therefore, if you've acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king and you've dealt well with Jeroboam, uh, and his house, and have done to him as he deserves. For my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. But you've risen up against my father's house to this day, and killed his seventy sons on a stone, on one stone, and made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you've acted in truth and sincerity with Jeroboam, 
and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. So you can just, you can hear the sarcasm. No, you haven't done this. But if you did this, it's all going to be great. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled, and he went to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. So as you move into verses 22 um, down to verse 57, you're going to see that Abimelech and the men of Shechem begin to devour each other. Um, and so we'll just read the, some of the opening verses. It says now, our, verse 22, after Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years. So three years, they, they seem to get along fairly peaceable. Um, and, you know, I'm sure Jotham was like, how long, Lord? How long? Because, you know, you read three years and it doesn't sound like very long, especially when you know the outcome of the story. But if you're in the midst of those three years, three years can feel like forever. That's a very long trial. And, and just wondering. Verse 23, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. The men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So, um, yeah, the, the trees are, are not going to be very kind to the bramble. And, and the Lord is the one that stirred up this ill will. You know, you have enemies against you. Understand that the Lord can deal with them by putting ill will between you, uh, between them. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? You don't have to take out vengeance. Let the Lord fight your battles. He will do a much better job than you. So it's his, and let him take care of it. Um, and in verse 24, he says, That the crime done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might be settled, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who uh, aided him in the killing of his brother. So this is something that is the sovereign hand of God is orchestrating, and it is something that is meant to bring uh, judgment upon both groups, both Abimelech and the men of Shechem um, in, in, you know, for putting him over them. And the men of Shechem, verse 25, set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told Abimelech. Now Gaal, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from the vineyards and trod them and made merry. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam, the son, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamar, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? If only this people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, so he would be the, the guy that Abimelech would have appointed over there, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger aroused. <clears throat> and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, take note, Gaal, son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are fortifying the city against you. Now, therefore, get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. So he's telling him to do this. 
Abimelech is going to do this. Gal's going to see this and find out that there's a fighting. They're going to go out to battle. And as, as you read through this account, they're going to end up being destroyed. They, they, there's an ambush they're going to set. Um, Abimelech divides his army into three different companies. Um, and one of the companies is going to uh, deal with them. But let's skip down to um, about verse 42. It says, And it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field, and they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies, and they and lay in wait in the field. And he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city, and he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, and the two other companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people who were in it. And he demolished the city and sowed salt in it. So that it was no longer productive. Now when all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Bereth. So this is Baal Bereth, where they took the money for to give to him. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bough from the trees and took it and laid it on his shoulder. And then he said to the people who were with him, what you've seen me do, make haste and do as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own. And so they're going to take this and they're going to lay all of these boughs there at the at temple and he's going to set it on fire. And so just, just as it was... Uh, talked about, that's exactly what takes place. And so um, as you pick up a verse 50, it says, Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes and took it. But there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and women and all the people of the city fled and shut themselves in there, uh, shut themselves in, and they went up to the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near uh, the door of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. So she had good aim. Um, and um, he ends up, he doesn't die right away. And then he says, hey, to his servant, hey, my, his armor bearer, kill me. I don't want to be killed by a woman. That would be disgraceful. Um, and so, um, you know, the question often comes, what do people do when they're at the end of their life? Do they get humbled? Do they, do they call out to the Lord? And the answer is, it depends on the person. It depends on the person. Now, this would have been a good moment for him to have repented of all that he had done. Um, it would have been a good time for him to think of what the prophecy that Jotham had given. You know, you know it was given to the men of Shechem, but I'm pretty sure it got passed on. And so this would have been the moment to repent. But, you know, it's, it's amazing how hard people's hearts can be. And, and I would just warn you in this, is that if you are putting off getting reconciled with the Lord, do it today. Don't do it till another time. It's like, well, when it, you know, I'm at the end of my life, I'll do it. Well, I mean, maybe that's what Abimelech was saying too. But he never did it. As a matter of fact, his heart was harder. Uh, you know, youth pastor used to tell this story of this um, family that was uh, going from, you know, Orange County, and they were going over to um, the island of Catalina, and they flew over there in this little private plane, and then um, as they were taking off, um, something went wrong, and the plane ended up, um, you know, 
crashing. Not everybody died, but what the story was reported is this man who they had talked to so many times and told him to, you know, get right to the Lord. He says, I will, you know, at the end of my life. And in that moment when that plane was going down, he was actually cursing God. And he was not taking advantage of the last moments of his life to make things right. And, and so, you know, no repentance of Abimelech, but judgment came upon him. And this idea that, you know, um, the power or uh, the, the ability to repent is available at any moment and every moment of your life is not a biblical one. Actually, what we read in Genesis chapter 6 is that God says, um, my spirit will not always strive with man. So not, I, I don't feel like I could ever speak for anybody else. I don't think you can either. What that is, the last moment, you know, where the Lord's like, I'm done with it. But if you feel the sinfulness of your sin and you see the righteousness of Jesus, you need to repent now. Because there is no guarantees at the end of your life that you're going to be a broken and humble person. You might actually find that your heart only gets harder and harder and harder. Because to say no the first time to Jesus might have been very difficult. But if you are saying no for him month after month, year after year, decade after decade, you've created a pattern that might be very hard to break. Now, only the Lord knows, right? We don't know. We can't be the judge of this. But it is... A good warning, nonetheless, that if you're not broken before the Lord and not right with the Lord, is that you get right with him so you don't have to worry about what you'll do in those last seconds um, and whether the Lord will still be drawing you unto himself. You don't come just because you think it's a good idea. You do it because the Lord draws you. And if you have eyes to see the beauty and the wonder of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made, that is because the Lord has been gracious to you to see that. So repent. Get right with the Lord. Don't, don't put it off. Don't be an Abimelech that, um, you know, in his last moments, the only thing he can worry about is what are they going to say about me? Well, Abimelech, we have nothing good to say about you. Okay? We have, there's nothing good about Abimelech. Um, and so he's worried about his reputation. I, w- I mean, I, I bet he had no idea that, you know, thousands of years later, we would be looking at him as the as a terrible man and, and, and leader. Um, and uh, yeah, so be concerned with what God's going to say about you. That's the way to live your life. So verse 56, then thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. And on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. So that that um, bramble prophecy that we read about. As we move into chapter 10, um, the the main thing that we're going to see is the oppression of the Ammonites. But we begin uh, first there with a a couple of guys. So after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel. So Abimelech, again, not a judge, but one came to save Israel. Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. So here's something that's interesting. Um, of course, interesting family names, right? You have Tola, Pua, and Dodo, all right? But let's talk about Tola for just a moment. It's a name that comes up in a few other places in Scripture. But this is an interesting word, and 
I, I, this is, yeah, this is a rabbit trail, okay? I'm announcing that we're going on a rabbit trail. I mean, it, we're taking the name Tola. I'm not going to really try to make some grand conclusion about this when we're done with it, but I, I just find this too interesting to pass up. So Tola is a word that's used as a name, but it is also a, uh, a, a word, the Hebrew root Tola, that's used for worm or crimson or, um, yeah, maggot. Uh, so you, it's used in different ways, a grub. But there was, for the word um, worm, um, it's referring to this uh, species that um, they would take and they would crush them up and they would make crimson dye. But the interesting thing about this little scarlet worm is that when it was ready to give birth, um, she would crawl up the trunk of a tree and she would fix herself firmly and permanently and she would never come down off that tree alive. The eggs were deposited beneath her body and were protected until the larvae um, were hatched and able uh, to enter their own little life cycle. And as a mother died, um, what you would find is that there'd be a crimson stain um, from her body where she had fixed herself. And as she died, um, all these other little scarlet-type worms would come, and this they would you know collect them, they would crush them up, and this was something that was valuable. And so um, tola. Um, so it's, you know, re- refers to this. Now here's the interesting thing. A couple of verses. Psalm 22.6. It's a prophetic uh, psalm. And Jesus says, But I am a worm, a tola, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. Why would Jesus call himself a worm? Well, of course, this is a, a word that could also be used, right, in a derogatory sense of used against somebody else. We still use, you know, he's a worm. Um, but it's more than that here, isn't it? Because Jesus went up and he fixed himself on a tree as well. That he might give life to other men, all men who would come to him. And when he came down off of that tree, there was the crimson stain that was left behind. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like tola, scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So the promise of the cleansing and the forgiveness that comes. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it is fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory. It is through Jesus that we are given the life, just like that little uh, you know, female worm would go and give life to uh, the little worms that she was carrying, the little larvae, and then they would be able to have life. Henry Morris writes, this is what a picture this gives us of Christ, dying on the tree, shedding his precious blood, that he might bring many sons unto glory. He died for us that we might live through him. Um, Psalm 22 describes such a worm and gives us this picture of Christ. So um, as you think about this, um, just understand there is this meaning. Now, how do I tie that back to Tola? Well, he was a redeemer for uh, the nation, right? Um, I don't want to stretch it too, too far, but um, if he was ever made fun of for having the name Tola, um, well, not a bad name because Jesus it pictures and looks forward to the meaning that Jesus gives to even a little worm.
So um, just a little nugget there. We go on and we see uh, another reign of um, Jair, the Gileadite, uh, verse 3, and he judged for 22 years. Now he had 32 sons who rode on 30 donkeys um, and also had 30 towns which are called Haveth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. Now, as we move into this, the next section of this uh, chapter, uh, chapter uh, 10, verses 6 through 18, it's going to be taken up <clears throat> with um, looking at uh, the, the oppression that the children of Israel deal with by the Ammonites. And so the Ammonites and the Moabites, um, do you remember who their father was? Anybody? It's Lot. Is that really kind of gross story in the Old Testament of when he, he um, flees, right? Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, his daughters end up getting him drunk. Okay, th th those are the descendants. This is who we're talking about. So there is this kind of ancient um, relationship that was had. If you remember, and we're going to refer to this, is when the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, they weren't able to do any harm to the Ammonites when they wouldn't let them pass through, or the Moabites because they were a family. And so I don't want you fighting them. So they actually, if you remember, they dropped way down south, and then they came back up north to uh, not cross through their territory because they were told they were not allowed. Um, so they end up, shortly after that, getting in the fight with the Amorites, and they end up defeating them and taking their land. Well, now all these years later, the Ammonites say, that's our land. And so um, this is kind of the... Uh, the, the battle that's going on. So let's, let's look there at verse 6. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. They took them all in, right? And they forsook Yahweh and did not serve or did not worship him. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. From that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. And all the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah, also against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So that's a pretty, I mean, that is a, a great confession because that is exactly what they've done. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Yikes. Now, what is going on here? I think the Lord is trying to help bring them to a place where you can see this, a place of desperation. So verse 14, he says, Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. The Lord is compassionate. 
people, then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is this man who will begin to fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So, you know, this is, this is really interesting, you know, because as you, as you go through this, um, the Lord raises up these nations to rebuke them and correct them. Um, and then they're like, well, have mercy on us. He's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to. Then they put the gods away and they say, listen, you can do to us whatever you want. We just don't want it to happen by their hand. So if, if we need judgment, then you can judge us. And as they did this, and the Lord saw them. So I, I would go back, and what I would say is that statement where he says, I'm not going to deliver you, was meant to be a, um, a prodding in their hearts and in their lives, in the national mindset that's like, wait a minute. If God's not there for us, what does this mean? And I think it broke them down even further and brought them to a place where they were truly repentant. And true repentance is what God cares about. God is not interested, and we're going to read this in just a moment, in, in worldly sorrow. He's interested in godly sorrow. So 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10 says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For truly sorrowful, it will lead to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us nothing, in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So there's a lot of people that get, they're sorry over the consequences that they're dealing with, but they are not broken over their sin against the Lord. Verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 7 says, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. And he describes it. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, and all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So, listen, when, when we are repenting, we're not, true repentance is a repentance that's going to have us change our course of action. We're going to get rid of the gods. We're going to get rid of the things that um, are offensive. We're going to be zealous. We're going to have um, a fear um, in our repentance. This, this is how Paul describes it. And so in verse 15, we see them come back into uh, chapter 10. We see them come to a place of total surrender. It's like, all right, the gods are gone, and we are in your hands. Crush us, if you will. You know, David does something similar to this when he um, sins and he counts the people. And, and um, you know, he says, uh, you know, I don't want to be delivered in the hands of the enemy. Let me be delivered in the hands of the Lord. And let me, you know, I'd rather have to be, you know, him because... He can show mercy, whereas the enemy won't. And they seem to understand this. And, and maybe you feel like, oh, there's no chance. There's no chance for me. God's done with me. Oh, get lower. Get lower. And, and be broken before the Lord. And get rid of anything that is standing in the way. Now, at the very end of this chapter, verse 18, um, Israel says, we need somebody to fight against Ammon. Who is this man? Who's going to be our deliverer? 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And this you've done foolishly, there from now on you shall have wars. And so he wasn't, the Lord was looking, but wasn't, he was not available. 
But the Lord is always looking for somebody. I mean, they're, they're, they're saying who will fight, but the Lord is always looking for somebody that will stand up, will go and will be a standard, and will speak the words of truth. Ezekiel 22.30 says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. The eyes of the Lord are always looking. And I, I don't know how that verse strikes you, these two verses strike you and touch you, but I pray that this stirs you up as a man or woman of God to think about the eyes of God looking upon this world and the situation and that he's looking to use a man or a woman for his glory and for his honor. And here in the book of Judges, we've seen, um, you know, we've seen a couple ladies be used, right? And we've seen men be used by the Lord. I believe the same is true today. The Lord is looking. Of course, the one who's the ultimate deliverer is Jesus, right? And he was sent. But we are the ones today that God is looking among. It's in his church that he's looking to find people that will stand up. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So this is not a far-off thought. God created us. Of course, he redeemed us, but in this, this new birth, he created us to be people that would go and do the works of his kingdom. And I believe his eyes are still going through this earth and looking for those that he can use. I think it begins very simple. Dads, he's looking in his own house, in, in your house, for somebody to use in your own house. You're like, well, yeah, but what about the great, oh, I wouldn't mind standing in front of 10,000 people and preaching. And okay, I have those same dreams too. I would like to do that as well. But, and see mass revival. Yes, that's great. That's wonderful. But what about your house? You know, the Lord is looking for you know, men and women in their homes to, to stand up that he can use. And within his church, men of faith, women of virtue, to be a light and to be an example and to be a voice. But if we're so caught up with what the world is looking for and we're trying to conform ourselves to that, we'll never be the people that God is looking for. We'll never be those people. And yet, it still stands, you've been created for good works. Which means this, we will finish, if we are caught up with this world and we do not do the works the Lord has called us to do, we will stand before the Lord with a, a to-do list that is not completed. And that's why I believe we read um, Paul saying that there will be a loss of reward. How can you lose a reward you never received? Because the Lord knew what he wanted to do and those works that he's planned for you, they have associated a rewards with them. But to not do those works means we not only don't do the work, but we miss out on what God had put on the table for us. I pray that that just drives you nuts to think about that terrible idea. It's like there's no way that I would ever want to walk away from that which God had intended for my life. So the people... Um, of Israel are crying out, we need a deliverer. So we move into chapter 11 and we find that Jephthah is going to be this man. Um, you know, Jephthah's, I mean, just pay close attention <laughs> as we read and, and be asking yourself, what level of spirituality did this man have? Just, I mean, okay, we got the, 
we know what the time is like, right? Go back to verse 6. You know, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord. They did not worship him. So that, that's, that's the climate. That's the spiritual state. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. All right, so there's your guy. Um, kicked out of his house, kicked out of the family, and now... Um, he has worthless people, and they tend to attract each other. And he's just going out, and he's raiding. Now, it doesn't say it specifically, but it might be that he was raiding the Ammonites. And um, there's a map that we'll show you in just a moment, and I'll point out that you know, he's, he's living on that, not far from the territory of the Ammonites. Verse 4, it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that elders of Gilead went up to, Jep to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander that we might fight against the people of Ammon. And you're probably thinking, Hmm, these are the same people that kicked him out. And he has not forgotten. And so he says, verse 7, um, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now? When you are in distress, the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be a witness between us if we do not, if we, uh, do, not do according to to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commanders over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So he says, All right, I'll come, but when I come back, um, I'm not going to be the guy that you just get to, you know, uh, speak evil against. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rule over you. So if you want me to come back, I'll come back, but I, I'm going to be the top guy. Like, you can be the top guy. Then you ask him, why, why would they go and get him? Well, go back to verse 1. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor. Why are they going? Because this guy knew how to fight. And he was successful in his raids. And they wanted to find somebody that could win when they went to battle. That's why they ate the humble pie and went and found him and asked him to be a part of this. So as you move into verse uh, 12, he's going to begin to try diplomacy. He's going to begin to talk to the Ammonites. So now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people saying, what do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah because Israel took away my land. Oh, so here we are all these years later and the fight is still the same. My land, no, my land. No, it's my land, it's my land. So, um, you know, this is, this, he says, why are you coming to my land? They said, well, your land? No, this is our land. 
It says, when they came up out of Egypt um, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore those lands peaceably. So Jephthah again sent messengers. So this took a little bit of time. They weren't texting back and forth, right? So uh, to the king of the people of Ammon and said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up out of Egypt, and he's going to give a recount of what I just said. No, we went down to the, we went south, we came up north, we did not fight against you, we did not cross your land. Then verse 19, then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Ammonites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said, please let us pass through your land, uh, your land into our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through the territory, so Sihon gathered all his people together and camped and Jehaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel and defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites, not the Ammonites. We didn't even walk through your land. Your history is wrong. This is what actually took place. Um... They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, Jabbok and from the wilderness to Jordan. So it's the same territory. They're not just, there's no argument over the, the portion of land, but it's just what is the history of it. Now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? What gives you the right to take what the Lord has given to us? Will you not possess whatever uh, Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess, so whatever the Lord your God, our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. We are taking what the Lord has given to us. And then he says, now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against him? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and in its villages, and Aror and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? 300 years. If this was what took, why did you wait 300 years to decide to take your land? And so he's just showing them, he's like, you are completely wrong. Of course, this act of diplomacy and history lesson does nothing. Verse 28, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent them. So they're going to go to war. They're going to go and they're going to have a battle. And um, as um, he gets ready to go. The first positive thing we see here about Jephthah is that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. In verse 29, as he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And Mizpah of Gilead advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. This is what he's most known for. And said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then I, it will be. Whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, surely uh, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon. He fought against them. He defeated them, right? He has victory. Um, the Lord gives him that, that uh, uh, request. Verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. For I've given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. 
So she said to my father, If you've given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So, she, so he said, Go, and he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And so it was at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, at, uh, which he had vowed. She knew no man, and it became a custom in Israel. So that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. What in the world happened here? Well, um, there's no, uh, there's two schools of thought. And one is that, you know, what he expected to come out of his house was some of the animals. It's very common for them to keep animals in their homes. So, um, you know, that's what he expected. But instead, instead he sees his daughter and um, he actually ends up one school of thought is that he actually does end up offering her up as a sacrifice. Now, if this is the case, um, it's not because the Lord told him to, and nor would the Lord held him to that. We, hopefully you remember our study through um, you know, like, you know, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. You could redeem people with silver, right? You remember there's this redemption that you could pay to redeem somebody. Um, and certainly this would have been a time to break a vow, um, because if indeed he did this, this was a foolish vow um, to include uh, human people. God doesn't want human sacrifice. That's what the gods were doing. This is not what they wanted. And so the question is, well, what did he end up doing? And, um, you know, we can end up, you know, arguing uh, this one out. Um, people have different opinions. Um, to me, um, I, I kind of lean towards this idea is that he doesn't end up offering her up as a human sacrifice. Now, I cannot prove it definitively, so if we want to have a debate about it, um, probably let's choose something a little more significant. But anyways, I mean, I, I think that he, he didn't do this. Now, here's a couple of reasons why. In verse 31, we read, Then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord. And then there's a, there's, some, there's a question of this next little conjunction of whether it could be translated and, and often is, and, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Or you could use the word, or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So the idea being, if, you know, it may not be the, a person, but I will choose something else for a burnt offering. And so that's, that's one way uh, to look at this. It's not definitive, um, but certainly what you know, some would say. But um, she goes out and she begins to mourn her virginity, and then they end up every year having this festival where they will, the daughters will go out and they will remember that. So the other idea is that she just lived in singleness the rest of her life that she wasn't able to be married. She didn't. We get this interesting comment, she never knew a man. Why do you add that? Why, why add that little element, you know, it seems unnecessary um, to the story if he ends up just offering her up. Um, so um, that seems to be a, a more likely case. 
um, knowing God's um, complete disdain for um, the human sacrifice that was so common among the gods of the Amorites. But those who say, no, he offered her up um, as a uh, burnt offering um, as well. I mean, look at his pagan background. <laughs> I mean, this guy was run out of town. He was a, you know, he was one that would go and raid people. Um, there's not like they're sitting around having Bible studies and figuring all this out. I mean, so maybe, maybe that is exactly what he did. Um, but, uh, you know, listen, if you vow to do something that is contrary to Scripture, obey Scripture. That, that's the simple answer, right? I think we all understand that. So um, what he ended up doing, if he did the worst and he offered up his daughter, it would not be because of what the Lord wanted. It would be because he was not familiar with the Word of God. So he makes this, uh, this, this promise. Now, in chapter 12, and, um, you know, there's, um, yeah, golly. Um, you know, I, don't, I hate to just leave chapter 12. There's only 15 verses. I'm going to go for it. I, it's actually, I only have, I don't even have like uh, two full pages of notes here. So um, the men of Ephraim, after the victory, they come and they said, why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? Yeah, these guys are a bunch of whiner babies. This is exactly what they did with, with Gideon. Remember, and he's like, hey, it's okay. You guys ended up getting greater victory. You know, you're the ones that, you're the real heroes. And all, oh, you think so? Okay, then we won't kill you. I mean, so, but here they are again. You know, we wanted, why didn't we go down? And we're not getting the glory. That's what they're really saying. And Jephthah said to them, my people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. What in the world are you talking about? You're rewriting history. You know, you're just like the Ammonites. That's not what happened. You didn't want to fight. So when I saw you didn't, uh, would not deliver me, I took my life in my own hands and crossed against the people of Ammon. The Lord delivered them. Where were you? And now you want to come and fight against me? Well, Jephthah's no, no Gideon. He's going to have a different approach. And Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among uh, the Manassehites, so there's civil war. And the Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordans. This is up kind of the north, northwest of the country before the Ephraimites arrived. And when the, any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over the men, this is comical, the men of Gilead would say to them, are you an Ephraimite? Uh, no. They said, great. Then say Shibboleth. And he would say, Sibboleth. <laughs> True story here. For he could not pronounce it right. So there's something in their dialect that just, they couldn't get the shh. It could only be the s. And they're like, yeah, right, you're dead. And um, 42,000 Ephraimites died. Now this was the interesting thing. They had a, um, it sounded so close to say Sibboleth. It sounded a lot like Shibboleth. But it was different. Kind of like them saying, hey, we really wanted to go and fight. Oh, it sounds like you were all in, but in reality, you weren't all in. And so it's, it's just, I don't know if there's a connection there, but I think, it's, I think it's a little ironic. Is What came out of their mouth sounded right, but was not right. And when they had came time to kind of say who they were, um, it was close, 
but it wasn't right, and it ended up costing them their life. Quite sad. Civil War, 42,000 end up dying. Um, and then we read verse 7 that Jephthah ruled for six years, and he died, and he was buried um, in the land of Gilead. You find him listed in Hebrews um, chapter 11 in the Great Hall of Faith. Um, so he ended up being a, quite an interesting character that God called into this fight. And then at the end, you have verses 8 through 10. You have Ibzan judges Israel for seven years, but he allows intermarriage of his children. Verses 11 and 12, Elon judges for 10. Verses 13 through 15, Abdon judged for eight years. And he lived like the kings around him and had many wives. And so that takes us to the end. That's why I, I knew we could get through it quickly. But let's wrap this up. Let's just turn our hearts to the Lord here. And let's come to the Lord in prayer. And um, just, just close your your eyes, allow the, these thoughts, we've already discussed them, but maybe this is a point for you to respond to the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are going to and fro. He's looking. People are looking. People in the church, people in your home, people in this world, they're looking for answers. And we are the people of God. And we have the answers. So the question is, are you available for the Lord to use you for kingdom purposes? He is looking. Are you available? And if you are, Romans 12.1, present yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice. It's your reasonable act of service. Say, here I am, Lord. So if that's where you're, if that's really just speaking to your heart, fine. The other point is this: Are you in need of true repentance tonight? Allowing the Lord to break your heart, and maybe you've come to a point where you're on the road to repentance, but you got a little bit of that worldly sorrow still going on. It's not godly sorrow. Then allow the Lord to break your heart down to that next place of just complete brokenness. That's a tough one, because how do you measure it? I would just say, Lord, you know my heart. Search my heart. You know my ways. Try me. And Lord, if there's something that's not right, then Lord, break me down. Bring me to that place that your mercy can flood into my life. Hear what he has to say. Just give you a moment to respond to the Lord. Lord, we, we believe in the worthiness of your kingdom. Lord, we believe in the worthiness of the things that you ask us to do. And so we submit ourselves to you. Here we are, living sacrifices. And Lord, do search our hearts. See if there's any wicked way. Lord, we can think we know our hearts, but it's, it's, it deceives even ourselves, even our own hearts. But Lord, you don't deceive us. So speak clearly. May we be those men and women that are broken and humble before you, able to be used for your kingdom and glory. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.